Throughout history, there have been the gatherings of the Illuminati, the nexus of hipness, the ultimate in-crowds that seem to spring up organically without planning or forethought. You know the drill, the Cabaret Voltaire, Liverpool in the 60s, Bloomsbury, Warhol's factory, or getting into Woodstock for free. All the places that if you had H.G. Wells' time machine, you'd be catching last call at the Scribblers Club with Al Pope and Dean Swift, never mind the Morlocks. Sometimes it's just a certain clique, sometimes it's a place, and sometimes it's both. In Manhattan, nestled between 5th and 6th Avenues on West 44th, is one such focus of cool, the Algonquin Hotel. The Dilettante, a Ferrochrome podcast. The Algonquin Hotel opened for business in 1902, at the beginning of the Edwardian age, and the same year uber philanthropist Brooke Astor was born. It joined a Tony coterie of already existing neighbors on 44th Street, the Harvard Club, New York Yacht Club, and the must-be-seen-in-restaurants of the time, Sherry's and Delmonico's. Designed by architect Goldwyn Starrett, its limestone and brick facade immediately speaks of another age, where gentility came in small packages. Mind you, this was the era of ragtime, and Manhattan's fin de secal propriety usually had scandal waiting at the stage door with flowers, or on occasion a gun. An excellent example of this heady mix was in the summer of 1906. Architect Stanford White was shot at point-blank range while watching a chorus line of showgirls high-stepping their way through a mediocre musical. The murder took place in Madison Square Garden, a building, ironically, which was White's crowning success as an architect. The assassination was a crime of passion. White's shootist, Harry Thaw, had been cuckolded by the deceased's philandering with Thaw's young wife, Evelyn Nesbitt, an ex-showgirl herself. It was in this milieu that hotel manager and later owner Frank Case read the zeitgeist correctly and decided to change the original name of the hotel from the Puritan to the First Nations-inspired Algonquin. Although Case probably didn't know or care that the word Algonquin meant at the place of spearing fishes and eels, he couldn't have picked a more appropriate nom de guerre if he had for the Algonquin would become the center from which the vicious circle, as termed by Doyen Dorothy Parker, radiated. From the beginning, Frank Case wanted to position the hotel as a gathering place for the literati and the denizens of the theater. This was facilitated by his possibly unwise accounting practice of extending credit to actors he favored. Whether this was a conscious effort at getting that kind of word-on-the-street buzz that money supposedly can't buy, or just a patron of the arts kickstarting a scene, it didn't matter. It worked on both counts. And just who made their way through the lobby of the Algonquin? A list of the famous, infamous, and generally well-known who have strode or staggered through the front doors is extensive. Illuminati such as John Barrymore, Booth Tarkington, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. frequented the Algonquin, which patron H.L. Mencken referred to as the most comfortable hotel in America. 
The Algonquin was also one of the first to welcome women guests traveling on their own. Femme fatales, thespian and literary, included Gertrude Stein, Simone de Beauvoir, Helen Hayes, Eudora Welty, Erica Jong, and Maya Angelou. There were also various Nobel laureates underfoot with Sinclair Lewis, who loved the Algonquin so much he tried to buy it, and William Faulkner, who actually wrote his Nobel acceptance speech there. It is in this dense atmosphere of deed and notoriety that one walks into the front entrance and is greeted with a palatable sense of stepping back in time. You'll be greeted by the resident cat Matilda, who is ensconced at the front desk. The aristocratic calico, a rag doll actually, is one of a long line of female Algonquin cats that have shared that moniker. The males are called, appropriately, Hamlet. These feline concierges have monitored the comings and goings at the Algonquin since the 1930s from their vantage at the desk. The lobby wainscoting is of dark wood, extended head-high up to an ochre mural of chinoise-flavored bamboo and mountain vistas. Dominating the far end of the lobby, which flows into the round table dining room, is Natalie Asensio's 1999 painting of Dorothy Parker and her round table cohorts. And to the west of the lobby is the Blue Bar, festooned with Al Hirschfeld drawings, tiny in size but creator of a grand martini. The round table room was formerly the Rose Room and was the sanctum sanctorum of Dorothy Parker's vicious circle. It was configured somewhat differently than it is today, as it was lined with booths. Indeed, it was in booth number one that Harold Ross signed the papers with yeast heir Ralph Fleischmann to start the New Yorker magazine with fermentation money of $25,000. The round table itself had started in 1919 as a welcome back party for Alexander Wolcott, who was resuming his duties as drama critic of the New York Times. He had just finished a stint in Paris as a war correspondent with Stars and Stripes, along with Franklin P. Adams and Harold Ross. Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, and Robert E. Sherwood were already lunching there regularly, as their jobs at Vanity Fair was just a few doors down. Soon this lunch gathering became a daily episode, and expanded its core constituents to include Edna Farber, Peggy Wood, Franklin P. Adams, George S. Kaufman, Haywood Brown, and Mark Connolly. There were naturally many others who swung in and out of the round table's valence by virtue of marriage or by sheer acquaintance. Among those were Harpo Marx, Helen Hayes, Ruth Gordon, and Humphrey Bogart with his first wife Helen Mencken, who was a friend of Wolcott's. If you've seen Alan Rudolph's 1994 film Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, starring Jennifer Jason Leigh as Dorothy herself, you get a sense that the banter among the lunchers was anything but light or benign. This was a group of 20-somethings who were possessed with protean wit, and if you weren't, you were doomed. This was the Olympics of the quick rejoinder, as many a barbed comment, cloaked in good humor of course, was volleyed back and forth at a breakneck pace. There's the possibly apocryphal comment of Alexander Wolcott to Edna Farber as they were just sitting down for lunch, where he said, Gosh, Edna, you almost look like a man today. To which Farber replied, Gee, Alex, so do you. 
ensuring your attendance at these lunches might have been more self-preservation than conviviality, as one's pitiable character was certain to be ravaged by the wolves in your absence. This type of goings-on was a PR dream for Frank Case, and he immediately did what he could to sustain these thorns by putting them aptly in the Rose Room around a larger table. He treated the talented but underpaid bright young things to free celery and popovers, and assigned them their own waiter, Luigi. One of the circle's own names for themselves was the Luigi Board in tribute to their beleaguered server. There were offshoots of the Algonquin Roundtable that budded from the main stock to become notorious in their own right. One of the more notable was the once-a-week poker game organized by Harold Ross, Alexander Wolcott, and Franklin P. Adams as a continuation of their card games while in Paris. Dubbed the Thanatopsis Pleasure and Inside Straight Club, Card Sharks George S. Kaufman and Harpo Marx soon joined, and like the round table, it soon metastasized into a much larger group, which soon included the likes of Ralph Fleischmann, Sinclair Lewis, banker Henry Wise Miller, Irving Berlin, Ring Lardner, and a host of other notable sharks and suckers. They were immortalized in 1929 by noted caricaturist Will Cotton in a painting commissioned by Thanatopsist Paul Hyde Bonner. It was more of a boys club subsidiary to the round table proper, but that didn't stop Dorothy Parker and Edna Farber from being dealt in on occasion. The longevity of the circle is surprising as it lasted 12 years until 1931. The date of the actual end of the round table era is debatable, as with all good gatherings, it just sort of petered out from attrition. While it might have been good for Case and the Algonquin, it wasn't necessarily good for the work ethic of the round table's constituents. Indeed, Robert Benchley, who lived at the Algonquin, finally had to move out to the Royalton just to get some work done. Later on, he, George S. Kaufman, and others would start getting screenwriting gigs in Hollywood, and the rest simply started buckling down to work. Edna Farber, who would go on to her greatest accomplishments after the sublimation of the round table, might have been the witness to its death rattle in 1932, saying, One day, having finished a long job of work and wishing to celebrate, I flounced into the Algonquin dining room, sat down in an empty space at the round table, and found myself looking into the astonished and resentful faces of a family from Newton, Kansas, who were occupying the table on their New York stay. I mumbled an apology and left. While the Algonquin is synonymous with the round table, they were not the only source for proto-rock star antics. Tallulah Bankhead apparently pulled a bit of a Keith Moon in her hotel room when she stayed as a young debutante of 17 years old. Humphrey Bogart evidently decided to paint his hotel room blue with his first wife. John Barrymore, unsurprisingly, used to imbibe in the hair of the dog for breakfast at the Algonquin. Frank Case, who reportedly favored prohibition before it was mandatory, turned the great profile onto a cup of coffee as a more appropriate breakfast beverage. There is also a young Douglas Fairbanks Jr. traveling with Dad. When he wasn't roller skating on the then marble-floored lobby, Doug Jr. was up on the Algonquin's roof, shooting out the lights on the neighboring Hippodrome sign with an air rifle. Incredibly, the Algonquin only had 
two owners over almost 90 years. After Frank Case passed away in 1946, Ben Bodney of Charleston, South Carolina bought the hotel on the insistence of his wife Mary. They had spent their honeymoon there in 1924. When they were in town, Mary Bodney could be seen in the lobby holding court with the likes of Simone Signoret, who was lamenting her husband Yves Montan's philandering with Marilyn Monroe on the set of Let's Make Love. As one exits the lobby onto West 44th Street, past a sleeping Matilda, it's not difficult to imagine you've just lunched with Benchley, Parker, and the rest of the vicious circle. As Alexander Wolcott once said, all the things I really like to do are either immoral, illegal, or fattening. Arguably, there was no better venue to indulge these vices than at the round table of the Algonquin Hotel. The Dilettante, part of the Fairchrome Podcast Network.